working? That's fine. All right. Okay, so yeah, I think we can launch into our project uh, in a second. First, I think we'd love to hear sort of like how you got into psychedelics research and what you like has been the most notable changes in the field, um, okay. just sort of to like, get an understanding sure. of everything sure. from your perspective, and then we'll sort of turn it around and start talking about our project a little bit. Right. So I first became interested in psychedelics in the, in the late 60s, so which makes me pretty old, rel relatively speaking. Um, but I, I, I quickly learned that um, taking a psychedelic in a college dormitory was, was not the ideal setting. So I, you know, my firsthand experience was very limited. There was something, but relatively limited. But I had the opportunity uh, in the early 70s to read the literature on, on psychedelics, the psychiatric literature, the medical neuroscience literature. And I found it really fascinating. And, um, and I, and I do actually, I, um, there was a point in time in the early 70s where I, I had left college, so I was out of school, and um, I, and my, honestly, my father was a little concerned about my lack of direction, and he said to me, well, son, if you ever figure out what you want to do with your life, I want you to call me. I don't care what time of the day or night it is, I want you to call me and tell me what it is. So I had got this job where I was a research assistant of a dream research study at a big medical center in New York, at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn. And um, so my job would be to stay up all night and monitor EEGs. So in order to stay awake, I needed some interesting material to read. And it just so happened that one of the investigators had a great library on psychedelics. So I just got his permission and I started to read a lot of this material, and I was really fascinated. And one night, about three in the morning, I'm staring at the EEG tracing. I have an epiphany that I knew what I wanted to do. So my father had said, call me. I figured I'd call him. So I called him up three in the morning, woke him from a sound sleep. So once he got oriented and figured out why I was calling, he said, okay, what, what is it that you want to do? I said, I know what it is I want to do. I want to study psychedelics. They're really fascinating. There's so much we can learn about the brain, about the mind-brain interface, about mental illness. And there are these very impressive treatment models which seem to help people for whom conventional treatments don't help. So he was quiet for a little while. He said, finally said, well, son, there may be something to what you say, but no one will listen to you unless you get your credentials. So... At that moment, boing, I knew I had to go back to school. So I, I went to Columbia, did all my pre-med, and then I went to medical school in New York. And um, then first went into internal medicine, actually, because when I was in medical school in the 70s, psychiatry didn't really catch my interest. And the, the, the branch of psychiatry that involved itself in studying psychedelics had basically disappeared. There was no research whatsoever going on. In fact, it was virtually taboo even to talk about the topic. So I just kept my interest to myself and uh, plugged away, did my training in internal medicine. Then I did some neurology training. And then I, I, at, at the, uh, I was at Stanford and the, um, went into the medical bookstore one day and came across Stanislav Grof's first two books on the psychedelic treatments he did. One was the um, realms of the uh, it's called realms of the human unconscious, and the other is human encounter with death. And those books just blew me away. Uh, and I, it's like I remembered why I wanted to go to medical school. And so, after some pondering, I decided to transfer into a psychiatry program, where I announced what my interests were. And I again found that it, it still wasn't time to talk about this, but I plugged away, I did my psychiatry training. I did my child psychiatry training. I was at Johns Hopkins for, for a while. The chairman there was very antagonistic towards the use of psychedelics, even for basic research. Her position at, at UC Irvine. And there I met a couple of uh, 
other faculty who shared this interest. So together, we embarked on some writing projects. We, we did a book together. And then we I started to write some research protocols. And in 93, I uh, was recruited to Harbor UCLA to be the chief of child psychiatry and um, went up there. I'll tell you a story. I, I, um, so when I was being recruited, the chairman, uh, you know, I was meeting with the chairman, Dr. Milton Miller, and um, we're talking about my interest. I well, you know, I want to make sure you know exactly what I'm interested in because it's a bit unusual. He said, well, I've heard about it. So but I really want you to know. So here's copies of everything I've written, you know, papers I've published, manuscripts I'd like to publish, protocols I'd like to do. Please, please look at it. So, you know, then I left. I came back a few weeks later for, to meet with him again. We're talking. And so I asked him, well, did you have a chance to look at that material I gave you? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what do you think? He said, it was interesting. I still needed to know if he was comfortable with this. So I said, well, look, you know what I'm interested. You know what I want to do. So I have to ask you, am I too crazy for you? And he said, well, you know, you're a lot crazier than I thought you were, but still well within my MMPI. The MMPI is a, is a an old-fashioned test for personality uh, dimensions. So, yeah. So anyway, that, that's my story. So then I, uh, you know, at Harbor UCLA, I had um, a lot of support from the old chairman and from the, the new chairman about after I was there for about 10 years, we had a replace, we had a, got a new chairman and uh, yeah, the research administration and the hospital administration have been very uh, supportive and um, I've been able to get some things accomplished. I've been able actually to do what I dreamed of doing when I was really young. It all, I had to wait a long time like 50 years, <laughs> but it, 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 it was possible. I just, I think I, I, I was very stubborn by nature and I just persisted. I thought this was a good idea. No one else seemed to be doing it or hardly anybody else. So I just kept, I felt somebody needed to do it. And I had some encouragement to keep writing and keep speaking publicly and to do some research eventually. So there, there, that's my story in a nutshell. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I I read like Michael Pollan's book, the the How to Change Your Mind, and I feel like I can trace your history throughout, like all those sort of markers you're talking about when things changed with yeah. the history that yeah. you portrayed in that book. So it's really interesting to hear about it firsthand. Um, and I think you're going to be really helpful for our project. So I think I'm going to turn it over to Daisy, and she'll present our project a little bit, and then we can okay. discuss some ideas with right. you. Yeah, so um, we're all in the Society and Genetics Department and for our capstone, we're required to do um, kind of like an intersectional project that takes into account both society and biology. Um, and so one of the, I guess, key moments or key current events that we wanted to base our project on was um, the passing of the Psilocybin Services Act in Oregon, also known as Measure 109, where they're planning on implementing psilocybin for um, psychotherapy. And the format of our project is going to be, basically the bulk of it will be like an, a model for a nonprofit organization that can help um, work with the people that are um, currently implementing the measure in Oregon because they're currently in their two year implementation phase. Um, and so we really wanted to just get your thoughts on kind of how to take into account a lot of different problems, mainly social problems that we can see coming up with um, the legalization of psilocybin assisted psychotherapy in Oregon. So for example, like accessibility for certain um, groups of people that maybe won't have access to this type of therapy, or if medicalization is really the way to go with um, psilocybin, if it's better to um, administer synthetic psilocybin that's been patented by other pharmaceutical companies, or if it's better to have it from the actual mushroom itself. Um, kind of all these very contentious problems that might arise right. with, uh, right. yeah. Yeah, so in Oregon, I mean, not, not only Oregon, but you had some cities, you know, Denver, Oakland, Santa Cruz, now Washington, DC, I've read. So um, things are starting to move and it's, I think a welcome change that there's, we're moving towards decriminalization, criminalizing these, you know, these compounds, the, these plants has always, 
cause more damage than than than, than they've protected people. So it, it's good to see it being decriminalized. However, that being said, there's got to be some control mechanisms as to um, you know how, you know how are people going to utilize these compounds? I think the first step is there needs to be a very robust public education program. You know, most people out there don't have a clue. If they know anything at all, they just assume these compounds are in the class of recreational drugs. And so their model of how to use would be a recreational party model. And I think that's a, that, that's a setup, you know, for problems, you know, particularly vulnerable people taking it in uh, settings that are not well controlled, you know, so that's, uh, that, 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 that's going to be very problematic. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, there is this issue that uh, businesses are now trying to patent psilocybin or various uses of psilocybin. This, you know, for Wall Street to invade, you know, this, this arena, I, I think is, uh, well, it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, they're gonna bring a lot of funding that will allow more research to happen and perhaps we can advance our knowledge and get a better sense of the, uh, you know, how, how well th this could be uh, applied. But um, uh, business is also focused in on, uh, and I'm talking specifically about for-profits, they, they want to extract profit from the use of these compounds. And my concern is if they're looking to maximize return on the investment, they're going to want to cut costs. So are they going to lower standards as to uh, who's going to be facilitating these treatments? You know, my model is um, facilitators, at least when this starts off, should be individuals who have clinical licenses, you know, health in a health or mental health field. They have, they, they've been trained, they have supervised experience, they've worked with people who are ill medically or psychiatrically. They, they understand boundaries and ethical parameters. Um, it, 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 it's, um, yeah, you, you, you know, that, that, that's gotta be factored into the equation as well. Who's going to be facilitating these experiences? So should these be purely for therapeutic purposes or, or medicalized purposes? Well, maybe initially, but then you have the whole issue of um, use within religious or spiritual contexts. I did a lot of research in Brazil looking at the use of ayahuasca by a syncretic modern religion, and it was quite fascinating. And I saw a lot of good outcomes, let, let, let's say. You know, our study found our subjects generally uh, handled the ayahuasca experience well and, and actually underwent significant degrees of, uh, of, of healthy growth and tra transformation. By their own testimony, they were far more functional after joining this ayahuasca church than, than, than before. And, and there was a case in the US Supreme Court going back to the early 2000s. I was actually the expert medical witness uh, on that case. And the, uh, the, it went all the way to the Supreme Court which ruled unanimously to protect the freedom of religion rights of the ayahuasca church, the UDV. So um, there's already a, a model. There's also the peyote church for Native Americans. They need to be, need to be I think, 25% Native American, but provided that, they, they provide a sanction, which I think is very important because, you know, the likelihood of something going wrong, of people going off the rails is, is far more an issue, I think, in a, in a context where people have to sneak around and take, uh, have these experiences surreptitiously and, you know, um, always concerned that, you know, law enforcement could, could interrupt what they're doing. And that, that could be very frightening, very dangerous even. I have a, a question going back to something you were talking about, who facilitates the, the care, because this is a question we've been looking at a lot with Measure 109, because our understanding of the legislation is that 
um, they're only requiring like a 10 week training course and no higher education degree in order to be a therapist. And we've been sort of weighing like on one hand that potentially makes it accessible to more communities where there might not be like people who could act as therapists with a degree and this way maybe it increases accessibility, but is it increasing accessibility at the cost of like the quality of the therapy and like the experience? Or safety. Yeah. Are, are, are you compromising safety? That's really the big issue. I think people need to get away from this, uh, this image that we, we need to come up with a mechanism where we can roll out this treatment right off the bat to many thousands of peoples. That, that's ridiculous. I think they need to start off with a, a smaller scale demonstration project and demonstrate they could actually do this right. And for that, I think you do need higher standards for who the facilitators are. People who could pick up on signs of uh, incipient or, or even active mental illness through an interview, through reviewing histories. If it's just some person off the street who may be a kind, gentle person, they, in many respects, they may do well in this role. However, they, they may come up a little short in being able to tease out or screen out people who would be at too high a risk or, or handling people who may go off the rails in, in the middle of an experience or have trouble integrating the experience afterwards. Again, I think, I think they've got to prioritize establishing strong and effective safety parameters and ethical parameters. You know, people's boundaries get very blurred under, under the influence of these compounds. And there are too many examples of facilitators taking advantage of a, uh, of a client or a patient or an individual undergoing an experience who, who had kind of, whose boundaries were, were dissolving. That, that person is at an exquisitely vulnerable point in time and to, to intrude on, you know, when person is in that kind of state can not simply be damaging, but could be more damaging than even in a, uh, in a clear mental status state. And it could, uh, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, like I said, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a positive step forward to decriminalize. No, no question about that. We've had too many, you know, very fine individuals, generally young individuals who've spent time in jail or prison for possession or, or sale, limited, you know, low level sales. That, that needs to end because that, that, that can destroy lives, you know, as well. But um, uh, yeah, I forgot where I was. I tend to lose track sometimes. It's an aging thing. So uh, where was it? Refresh my memory where I was headed with that. You're talking about Oregon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just that they, they got to start off creating as, as safe a context as possible. Once they've done that, and they could point to their good safety record, then perhaps you could consider, you know, lowering the bar for what it's going to take to get trained as a facilitator. But early on, I think they need to, they need to restrict it to people with a lot of clinical experience. And, and then, you know, as they demonstrate safety, you could start to relax those criteria, perhaps. And I have one more follow-up on that, which is another thing that we've discussed as a group is whether should therapists have taken the drug themselves? Like, is there sort of like, is that something that is necessary in order to be a good facilitator? And is that something you can even like require of someone to, what are your thoughts on I, I, that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you could require it. <laughs> I, I, I think generally speaking, people who are drawn to this field have had some firsthand experience, you know? Um, you know, when I get asked this question, it, you know, it's kind of, I point out a dilemma, you know, if, um, if I have taken these compounds, I could be accused of being biased in, in, in my, in my, in my views. But if I haven't taken these compounds, I could be accused of being negligent, guiding someone through a terrain that I've never been through myself. So I think there are quite a number of reasons why it's ultimately to the advantage of, of the facilitator 
to have some degree of firsthand experience, but uh, it, I, it would be a very dicey issue to make that a, a requirement. Yeah. Um, something else that we wanted to touch on is you mentioned previously that you had done work with ayahuasca and that's something that um, we kind of wanted to go off of in terms of um, thing, substances like ayahuasca and peyote are very culturally rooted and psilocybin obviously has a history of being culturally rooted with the Mazatec as well. Right. Um, and we've seen how a lot of these indigenous groups have been taken advantage of by Western companies right. or Western tourists and whatnot. So what are your thoughts on, I guess, psilocybin being administered in Oregon in a strictly clinical setting? Do you think that there is a way for um, I guess the facilities and institutions to still pay respects to where- uh, Colin, I mean, this, is, this is a great issue. That's a very important issue. More often than not, it gets ignored and it should not be ignored. You know, native peoples around the world have been marginalized. Their culture has been appropriated, monetized. They're, they're often left, with, they, they, their culture gets looted. They're left with, with nothing. They, they live in terrible, uh, poverty and in you know very unstable parts of the world they have desperate needs you know honestly you, 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 European civilization did a number to the indigenous people of the Americas and uh, the, the, these people their ancestors or rather their descendants ha have been continuously marginalized persecuted disrespected and here here we've identified a potential valuable medicine, from native peoples that through great risk to themselves and to their, their, their families and their communities, they kept the secret of the uh, plant hallucinogens extant. They, they kept the, the, the secrets alive. They had to camouflage generally from the, the Spaniards or the descendants of the Spaniards, but uh, they kept the secrets alive until the mid fifties when an amateur mycologist, R. Gordon Wasson, down in Oaxaca, in Mexico, uh, was introduced to a uh, curandera, a, a, a shamanist who used mushrooms for healing. She introduced them to mushrooms and, you know, Western science or Western, Western anthropology had written off mushrooms as being, uh, or hallucinogenic mushrooms as not being real. They said it was myth or confusion with peyote. They did not appreciate that, uh, you, you know, the, 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 these compounds were used in ceremony by native peoples dating back to pre-conquest. So yeah, for your nonprofit, I, what, what, a concept I mull around is there needs to be some kind of, of payback or, or reward or compensation to these communities of marginalized people, whether they're marginalized in Central America or whether they're marginalized in North America living in poverty, fearful of the law and deportation in, in, in our society, there, there really ideally should be, well, so certainly an acknowledgement of, of the great sacrifice these people went through, but also a mechanism whereby some of the profit that could be generated from administering treatments can be funneled into programs that'll help the descendants of the people from which these uh, compounds are, uh, came. So that would be revolutionary if you could do that. So under that same vein, um, I guess, what are your thoughts? Cause I know like consuming the mushroom itself in the form, in its natural form is a very um, important part of a lot of these ceremonies that indigenous um, peoples administer. So, but we've also seen that since synthetic psilocybin has already been patented by Compass Pathways. So yeah. I guess they, like- They patented a polymorph, which is just a, a, a structure. I don't think this patent is gonna hold up, but you're right, there's a okay. risk, it, it could. So you're asking about synthetic psilocybin versus the mushroom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? So, you know, when Watson, made his discovery or was told about mushrooms by Maria Sabina, the Kirandara, um, he obtained some samples and he sent them to the leading uh, medicinal chemists around the world to 
you know, isolate the active alkaloid. And no one could achieve that until he sent a sample to Albert Hoffman, who also discovered LSD in 1943. In the late 50s, Hoffman was the first one to isolate psilocybin, but there are other alkaloids in there. It's not, mushrooms don't just contain psilocybin. It was the first alkaloid isolated. It's been the one that's been studied, but there's also psilocin. There's baocysteine, which has an unusual range of psychotropic effects. So the mushrooms are qualitatively somewhat different than the, than the iso, one of the isolated alkaloids. And uh, I, I, even though American medicine and pharmacology is opposed for the, by, you know, by their long evidence of the practice, opposed to act, using actual plants as medicine, there may be something to the fact that nature has provided a number of alkaloids to interact with one another and to interact with whomever ingests. So it may be a qualitatively different experience and there may be some advantages. You know, nature doesn't necessarily put these, these alkaloids in there just for the fun of it or for happenstance. There, there's, a ra there's some kind of implicit rationale that we may not understand, but there's reasons why it's there. I, I would be very interested if there'd be a shift towards investigating plants in and of themselves. That's what we did with ayahuasca, but there's never been an approved clinical ayahuasca study in the US. We had to go to Brazil to do our study. We got approval there, but it, it wasn't a US study. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because like a lot of the, the bill, like the actual um, measure 109 talks about how like using the synthetics is preferable because of the ability to control dosage and control like all these things. And we've been sort of tossing around in our own group when we're talking about the proposal for our nonprofit that we're writing, like, do we want to go with that? Or do we want to push back against that and say that like, in order for these, these experiences to like be both respectful to their origins and most effective and like. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've got creative license to develop an ideal model. Don't get hung up on practicalities, and, you know, or the fact that FDA has never approved a whole plant, although they have done uh, alkaloids. There's a wealth of information out there, you know, for instance, on, on, on mushrooms, you know, you could look at like what Paul Stamets has done right? You've, you've seen his stuff. You saw him in a movie called Fantastic Fungi. Yeah, a very cool movie. And Paul's a real character. So, you know, look, look at what he's written, what he has to say. Dennis McKenna, who I collaborated with on my ayahuasca study. He's a, he's a big authority on, uh, on mushrooms. Actually, it was he and his brother, Terrence, who really introduced the whole concept of cultivating mushrooms into the U.S. in the early 70s. They did it with using pseudonyms, not using their, their real names, which is curious. So, uh, so yeah, I think for your, your ideal model, you know, that you're, you're, you're creating, can consider looking at whole plant. That, this way you avoid the whole patent issue altogether because your nonprofit could be stopped in its track because you're inadequately, you're not sufficiently funded to go against, uh, you know, big pharma, which is, you know, what these for-profit companies are wanting to become. Um, just out of curiosity, why do you think psilocybin has been at the forefront of um, like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy in the US rather than something that's been synthetically um, created like MDMA and an LSD and has never been, right. I guess, like naturally. Yeah. No, that, yeah. That's a good question. We, we, we actually did a lot of thinking through this years ago. Um, well, there are two issues. One is psilocybin versus LSD, and the other is psilocybin versus MDMA. So with, um, compared to LSD, psilocybin is somewhat shorter in duration. It's a four to six hour experience. LSD is an eight to 12 hour experience. It's somewhat milder, it's easier to control, more visionary, less prone to inducing anxiety, less, less prone to causing paranoia or, or you know, psychosis. So um, a number of reasons. Also, very importantly, psilocybin does not carry the 
cultural and political baggage that LSD has associated with it because of LSD's role in the 60s. It was the catalyst for the counterculture. For, you know, it's really a cultural revolution we had in the late 60s. Um, LSD developed a very, uh, you know, kind of a sketchy reputation because of that. And also when we tried to introduce, you know, we, we, we were actually, I think the second study to look at psilocybin in the modern era, you know, we did not, if we felt if we were led with talking about an LSD study, we'd alienate people right off the bat, including the, 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 the federal regulators and the state regulators. We felt we had to go in with more of a neutral, you know, topic or neutral sounding drug that didn't carry the, uh, all the negative associations that LSD had. When you talk about psilocybin, nobody asks you if you're going to be the next Timothy Leary. But if you talk about LSD, you'll get you'll you'll get those. I think that's kind of an obnoxious thing for them to say, people to say. But you know, in, 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 you don't have to worry about that with psilocybin. So less of, less politicization was important, um, and I, I felt easier to manage. If you're sitting in that room for four to six hours with a patient, that's a long day. If you had to switch it to an eight to twelve hour day, then they'd have to carry you out. That's that'd be too exhausting. You know, so, um, and again, uh, people I felt were better able to t handle a, uh, a psilocybin experience, an LSD experience, or the p less potential of going off the rails. Now with MDMA, that's, that's interesting. That's kind of, uh, MDMA has its own history of being a rave drug, being exceedingly popular among young people. There was a concern for some time that it caused brain damage. I think that's been dispelled, but that, that was an issue as well. So then you're looking at um, the range of effects of MDMA versus the range of effects of psilocybin. And you may find that with certain conditions lend themselves more towards what MDMA does versus psilocybin and others, it's the other way around. You know, MDMA, MDMA is really good very therapeutic for people who have difficulty putting their their feelings into words. Meaning, you know, you know the, the term alexithymic, without words for feelings. MDMA has a remarkable facility for helping people articulate how they actually feel. So, like for instance, a couples therapy, it's an ideal compound. Chronic PTSD. It works very well because you can, you know, talk, you know, in, engage someone in memory retrieval and revisiting that old traumatic memory and gaining some mastery over it, and then starting the process that's going to, you know, put the the old trauma more in, in the rearview mirror as opposed to just looming up at every at, at every turn. So MDMA can be, I, I think, may have advantages there. On the other hand. If you're working, let's say, with someone who is approaching the end of his or her life, who's dealing with some very, very heavy issues, real existential questions, existential fears, I find the classic psychedelics like psilocybin, that these can function ideally as existential medicine. They could really take someone very deep into their core and really address issues revolving around you know, some of our worst fears, existential fears and anxieties about the finality of life and what, what are the implications to that. I, I, I find that the classic psychedelic, particularly psilocybin, can, can more readily take you to that, that kind of existential space more so than MDMA. MDMA, you get into maybe a fine conversation, you know, addressing various issues. And, um, and you have those few hours of feeling good and energized. But then when you come off of MDMA, there's a big energetic slump. And someone who's very ill to begin with, you know, it, it, you know the, the energetic drain can be, I, I think, overwhelming. Whereas with, uh, you know, mushrooms or even psilocybin, there's more of an afterglow afterwards where people do not feel, you know, completely spent and, and, and uh, and depleted, they, they, they feel enriched and they, 
they they often can continue to process issues in the hours, the days, even even the weeks after afterwards. Also, I find I, I would find the classic psychedelics in all likelihood more effective with treating addictive disorders, treating alcoholism, because often what it takes to overcome alcohol abuse disorder or other kinds of drug abuse disorders is some kind of psycho-spiritual epiphany. And the, uh, the classic psychedelics are far more likely to facilitate that kind of experience than MDMA. So that's my long-winded answer to a good question. Um, that was helpful. Uh, no, I was just filling off. I have another question, but Daisy, do you want to say something first? Um, I just want to check in how much time you have because I have another question, but it's like a tangent, and I don't want to like. No, 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 I, 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 I've got another, you know, fifteen minutes or so. Okay, um, this might not necessarily apply directly to our nonprofit, but it's more of like a bigger picture question. So the thing with psilocybin is a lot of people often talk about how towards the end of their trip, they feel this feeling of oneness um, with being really connected with nature. And that's something that I think might be really beneficial for fighting a lot of larger problems that we might have with the climate crisis. Um, and this might be a little bit, I guess, too broad or too outside of Oregon where it's only being used for clinical purposes. But I was just wondering if there is a way to incorporate both within the treatment or if that's just asking too much for, from one you're talking about how how it may impact someone's awareness of nature of the environment. Yeah, and like yeah, that's, I guess that's 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 good question. I saw that in Brazil because I spent a lot of time, you know, doing doing our study in Manaus, which is the capital city of Amazonia, and and in the uh, the, the 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 outskirts. And I was really struck by how these people in the ayahuasca. Uh, churches that I was meeting, how many of them had become environmentalists, environmental activists, professionals, you know, focused on saving the environment. These compounds under optimal conditions seem to have a remarkable facility for opening people up to nature, helping people become aware that we live in a natural world and that the material world is, you know, we, we've created that, but really that that's, that's what's superficial that, you know, beneath and within we, we, we live on this planet. We share this planet with other beings. We um, we're in the process of destroying the planet because of our disregard for environmental destruction and cl climate change. I think psychedelics have a, uh, I think an unrecognized potential to facilitate greater levels of sensitivity and awareness for what, what is going on with the environment. Do you, do you think there's any like sort of inherent incompatibility between like those feelings of nature and the connection that these experiences can facilitate when you're um, taking the drug in like a more medicalized situation, like in a, like, can you still achieve that maximum benefit or you know, I, I, I think so. Certainly it's, it's ideal to take it out in nature. Like when I would visit these temples in Brazil, they were in beautiful areas generally in, 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 in the forest, nature is all around you. And you can really have that experience of, uh, you, you know, mer merging with, with, with nature. But if you take it in a, uh, in a hospital room as part of a, uh, you know, a, 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 a treatment process. And, uh, and you may have a picture of a tree, but no tree in the room. Still, when you leave that room late in the day or the next day, and in the days following that, and there's a greater awareness of, of natural elements in, in, in your surrounding. And people are often drawn to spending more time in nature, walk, walking through the woods, wor working on their gardens. So yeah, so even though the experience may not be in a natural setting uh, or, or a beautiful natural setting, that doesn't mean that people do not have this experience of, of opening towards nature and being aware and also 
feeling some responsibility or maybe understanding the collective responsibility we all have that we're, we're sitting on the, on the threshold of what's a crisis and could really cause, I mean, a level of destruction that uh, I think most people could not conceptualize. And I think that uh, the, the world really needs to open and become more sensitive to what human beings are doing to the natural world. And I think psychedelics have this unrecognized, uh, often, oh, you recognize it, so that's good, you know, facility to uh, help people become more aware and more co connected with nature. Um, should we go into our final question? Um, what was our final question? I had a question, I had one question. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Um, which was in looking at psychedelics compared to marijuana, do you see there being a similar path forward for psychedelics, this like medicalization, further decriminalization, recreational use, or do you think that psychedelics and sort of the way they exist in society are just inherently different? And that, that I, I think they're unique and distinct. I mean, marijuana has its own history and it's, it's, its own, you know, areas where it may facilitate positive things. And, and it's also got, got a downside as well. Um, I, you know, the degree to which marijuana has become a, a popular and accepted recreational drug, I, 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 I don't see that with psychedelics. You know, marijuana is a compound that some, many people will use on a daily basis. Psychedelics, you know, are often taken only once in a lifetime or on a handful of occasions spaced out over long periods of time. It, 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 it's the kind of compound that you might ingest, have an experience, and then reflect on the implications for a prolonged period of time, months, even years. So you'll meet some individuals who, who will say, I took a psychedelic on one occasion, it changed my life and I never needed to do it again. And that was not, a, that's not a rec, uh, yeah, and I don't feel psychedelics lend, lend themselves to the recreational model. I think recreational context will amplify the risks for both uh, safety and ethical problems. Okay, that's really interesting because I feel like a lot of the more like legal literature draws all these parallels, but I feel like they don't come from a place of fully comparing yeah. the nature of the drugs and more from like- They're all schedule one drugs, but beyond that, their, their, their histories are very different. Their, their pharmacology is very different. You know, they're, 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 how they're utilized is very, very, very different. So, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's kind of apples and oranges. I think one needs to be careful not to have kind of psychedelics uh, o o o overly identified with, with, with cannabis. I mean, ca cannabis could be medicinal. Cannabis has its applications. But these are entirely different models of treatment. All right, should we go for the last question? Thank Wait, you. I have one more follow-up question. <laughs> so does, does that mean that, uh, I mean, I guess, does that mean that you don't think that microdosing is something that would be feasible for the health people or it's more just like a trend that's not really- but What is, you know, what, what is microdosing? I mean, we don't really know what it's doing. We've got a lot of very impressive sounding anecdotal accounts, people, telling their stories, including some very uh, prominent writers, you know, telling their stories. But um, uh, there's never been a, 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 a well-controlled study, you know, holding the microdose psychedelic up to a uh, placebo and blinding it so you don't know who's on what. I actually looked into doing a study like that, but the logistics were because you cannot give someone a supply of microdosed LSD and say, okay, these are the times and the days you need to take them on. You can't do that. You, they've got to be at your research setting under observation, probably for, you know, a good six hours before you let them go. And the logistics were just too daunting, but be as it may, nothing is proven with uh, one way or the other with, uh, with microdosing. It, you know, it may turn out to be as effective as its proponents 
would like us to think, but it may just turn out to be a big old placebo response. So I hate to rain on that parade, but uh, so far at least I'm, I, I'm not, not all that impressed. It, it, mostly because the research just hasn't been done and we're jumping the gun to say, this is a, you know, a viable, gonna be a viable treatment. We just don't know. Yeah, we were kind of under the impression, uh, under the same impression about that as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, should we go into our final question? <laughs> okay. Um, so moving, looking forward to, I guess, kind of like the current movement, it seems like we're um, kind of reaching, um, like we already have good momentum within the psychedelic movement. Um, so what are you looking most forward to, or what are you most excited about for the future of the psychedelics movement um, oh. in the United States? Well, I, 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 we have a great opportunity to uh, develop, to cultivate and develop a, an entirely new treatment model, or to allow for these experiences to be used in non-medical settings, like religious, spiritual settings in, 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 in a control. So there's, there's this great opportunity, but there's also a high level of risk that uh, the whole process will go off the rails again, just like it did in the 60s. I think it's important we, we learn the lessons of the past. And, uh, you know, and, and I think in that, con in that sense, we, we need to make sure that these compounds do not get trivialized and conflated into um, cultural contexts where they, you know, they, they become more risky than, than beneficial. Um, it's, uh, again, we, we have a great opportunity. We, we just have to um, use this up time wisely and not get ahead of ourselves and not uh, create a scenario where predictably we're going to, have higher levels of uncontrolled recreational use where people will go off the rails, some will harm themselves, and the media suddenly develops a new, this new perspective that these are dangerous. Yeah, look, the, the higher you rise, the, the harder you fall. There's almost too, too many positive articles about psychedelics these days, because it becomes a setup for tearing it down if uh, more problems uh, occur. So that, that's my concern for the future. On, in terms of looking at an upside, I think we've got a potentially very valuable treatment model that could help people who, whose lives are being destroyed by their disorders and for whom we don't have good treatments. For instance, alcoholism, right? You know, one of the most... Uh, devastating diseases that anyone could develop would be a, uh, an alcohol addiction. You know, these people die young, they, they, they have rough lives, they harm the people around them. Uh, our conventional treatments have limited efficacy. And here is the possibility, at least, that under ideal conditions, we have an effective treatment. I'll tell you a story, um, an example. A CBS 60 Minutes in the late 60s went to Baltimore and, 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 and filmed a LSD treatment session of, an, of, a, of, a, of a young man who was an alcoholic from Baltimore, a young blue collar guy from, from Baltimore. His, he had a terrible alcohol problem. His, his family, his wife and his kids were ready to kick him out of the house because he was his drinking was so out of control. And this was his last desperate attempt to keep his family, to stay in the family. So he went for this LSD treatment and they filmed part of it. And he's having a challenging time, that's pretty clear. And they did a follow-up a few weeks later with him. And it's like, okay, I haven't had a drink. I'm holding on, it's tough, but I'm holding on. They went back to Baltimore 30 years later. They found this guy, they put him on camera and they asked him, well, how did things go subsequently? And he said, well, you know, after that LSD uh, treatment, I never have had another drink again in these past 30 years. Then he stayed with his family and it was a very uh, heartwarming story. But the bottom line was 
nothing was going to help this guy, but this was a model that had that potential because it really, it's existential medicine. It can tap people into the psycho-spiritual realm, which has remarkable implicit capacity and potentiality to heal. And this is an entirely new model for, for the, you know, the health, the health sciences, the health field to, to recognize and examine and to try to understand that if, if we can optimize the use of these compounds, minimize risk, we, we have a potentially highly effective uh, treatment model that can help people that are not being helped. So I guess that's my vision of the future, that it be, well, that, that it be cultivated as a medicine under ideal, ideal conditions and, um, and, and, and we could demonstrate how, how valuable this medicine, these medicines can be when handled in an optimally res responsible manner. So Thank that, you. that's my story. <laughs> we appreciate it so much. Sure. This has been, it's like really ties together. Reading so much literature is, is interesting, but to talk to someone who, you know, has like the firsthand experience of these sort of things just is such a different way to learn about something. So we really appreciate it. Good, good. Uh, I may, I may um, I'm going to say, there's a link to an article I wrote that's online. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you and you can distribute it because it, it goes into some of the history which I think is really important, right? If, if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're condemned to repeat them. So we, your generation needs to be smarter than the preceding generations and, uh, and, and, and you know, not keep making the same old mistakes that <laughs> the older generations are doing. You guys are gonna get it right. We're counting Hopefully. on you. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's everything from us and we'll definitely follow up with you if we have any questions as we go back over what we've talked about today. And also if we end up going forward with a podcast, we'll make sure to run it by you before sure. you do anything. Right. With it. Well, good luck with the project. Nice meeting you all. And good luck with post-college life. That's very exciting. You guys are on the, on, on the threshold of whole, opening up whole new chapters. So good you. luck. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll see you guys. Have a Bye good day. Bye. Hold on. I need to grab my charger. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> that was so cool. He was so nice. He's so nice. Also, just like, I feel like I, it's just so like cool to talk to someone when you're like, oh my God, I've been reading about this and we've been like making up these questions. But uh, she's back. Um, oh, but uh, like, I'm going to stop recording. <laughs>